This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health, a new fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com slash podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Wednesday, December the 19th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined via Skype by a special guest, Motley Fool Explorer lead advisor, Simon Erickson. Simon, how are you? I'm doing great, Shannon. This is always a pleasure chatting with you, so thanks for having me. Anytime, and I'm super excited about you joining for this show. Um, for our listeners that aren't aware, Simon literally scours the globe for the next big thing in his service, Motley Fool Explorer. And so no better person to have on the show to talk about what I think has been a question I know we've gotten uh, to industry focus, something that's been on the minds of a lot of biotech investors, but it's one of the hottest areas of investment right now, and that is the Chinese biotech market. So, Simon, I'm excited to dig into this today with you, but let's kind of set the stage because if you're like me, I kind of look at the Chinese market um, in some ways like the emerging biotech market in the US in the early 90s. It was rife with problems, really wasn't efficient, and you can see how far we've come since then. But what are your thoughts on what makes China such an attractive investment right now? Well, it's definitely the perfect storm right now for investors that are interested in this because there's a bunch of things that the confluence of them all together are are just setting the scene for this to be a really big market. What I mean by that, Shannon, is you've got kind of the funding, you've got the policy, and you've got the people in place for biotechnology in China. Regarding funding, five years ago, venture capitalists were putting about a billion dollars a year into biotech in China. That's now $12 billion a year, so a 12-fold increase uh, and venture capital funding pr- from the private programs that we've seen. But the government, too, is just pushing this as such a priority because they, they consider it a really big deal over there. Government's putting one and a half million dollars into uh, one and a half billion dollars, I should say, into 20 different research parks around the country. So they're really encouraging this. They are also uh, encouraging it as part of their 13th five-year plan uh, for biotechnology to account for 4% of GDP. That's a huge base, and about double the percentage that America spends on biotech here at home. And this is just something that also, once you have that academic research, you have the government policy in place, it's also got the opportunity for the exits through biotech-listed companies on the stock exchanges there in Hong Kong, and then also here on the NASDAQ in the US. So you've got the funding, you've got the policy. But even more than that, the thing that I think I'm most excited about is that the people aspect of this. China has always lagged the rest of the world because the most talented scientists were working with westernized pharmaceutical companies, the Sanofis, the Roches, the Mercs of the world. But China, through their Thousand Talents program, has been giving incredible incentives to lure those scientists that have clinical trial experience back to the country to work with Chinese-based companies uh, to start progressing their own biotech industry within the country's uh, sovereign walls. So it's really an, an interesting time. And for investors, there's a lot of opportunity in this industry as well. Yeah. And just diving more even into the healthcare side, there's a huge market opportunity in China from a healthcare perspective. So China has about 20% 
of the world's population. Um, it has about 30% of the world's cancer patients and the world's second largest pharmaceutical market. Right now, only four of 42 cancer drugs that have been approved globally in the past five years are actually available in China right now, which is astounding to me. So the growth opportunity here is tremendous. And you mentioned too, like all the funding and all the money right now uh, that's being poured into China. What you've seen happen a lot is a lot of these Chinese investors are have been investing in U.S. based biotech companies um, at an increasingly uh, fast rate. So on the U.S. side, now Chinese and other Asian investors make up nearly half of all the deal flow into U.S. biotech companies, um, compared to just 11 percent in 2016. And that was the 2017 stat. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like for 2018. I suspect it'll be even higher. But what a lot of these Chinese investors are doing there, pouring money into these U.S. biotechs, um, they are um, basically looking to generate returns to return back to China to really build up this Chinese biopharma hub. But at the same time, too, they're wanting to bring back the technology as well. So you see the sharing um, across across the seas here. Also, too, China has a rapidly aging population. You've got an emerging middle and upper class, so you've got some affluence. And the government, the government is actually aiming to ensure all citizens have access to basic healthcare services by 2020. So it's really no wonder why not only is China an interesting investment opportunity, but even more so healthcare in China specifically. Yeah, and I mean, every, every one of those statistics is, is a, a case in point, right? I mean, let's look at lung cancer. China's got about 36% of the diagnosis of lung cancer in the world. But when you look at the five-year survivorship rates in China, they're 17 percentage points lower than just the global average. I mean, forget about westernized economies. This is a country that's got big pollution problems. They've got higher smoking rates. They have regional issues that need to be addressed. Um, and they're behind the rest of the world. They've got a lot of people and a lot of money, but historically, they just have lagged more developed nations in healthcare. And I think that's rapidly changing right now. I totally agree. So, with that, let's kind of turn the tables a little bit, Simon. Uh, let's actually talk about what are the risks involved with investing in China? What are some of the downsides? What are the things that make you pause when you're looking at Chinese biotech investments? Well, the first, of course, for, for any Chinese company is the structure, the corporate structure of these companies. These are companies that you can't just go out and, and buy a Chinese uh, direct equity ownership. You have to buy things called American depository shares or American depository receipts. Those are sponsored by banks here in America that kind of act, work, work with the brokerages to secure shares. But they're structured in a way that there's an inherent risk always that if China's government just wants to say, hey, Shannon, we're pulling the plug and you no, no longer own any equity in this company, there's nothing to prevent them from doing that. These are variable interest entities. These are complex corporate structures that really don't give us the same say in corporate governance as we've gotten used to through proxy statements here in the United States. So there's always a risk for Western investors of that long tail um, just losing a stake or having regulations discouraging Western investors uh, at first. And then also something, Shannon, you and I have talked about in biotech and especially in China is regulations. I mean, this is a country that's kind of overhauled their equivalent of the FDA 
in recent years. In the last two or three years, we've basically, basically seen them uphaul the way that they reviewed new drugs that were coming to market. And there's a lot of uncertainty of, of how rigid that really is and whether they're progressing the best drugs through trials uh, through what some people would consider to be much more lax regulations than in Western economies. Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably the number one red flag when it comes to Chinese biotech is really the uncertainty surrounding regulations. And what I will say is China is certainly trying to take steps to fix that. So they are trying to take uh, their version of the FDA, the CFDA, and actually modernize that entire agency so that it is up to international standards. Um, And so that is certainly a work in progress. Um, You also have a huge backlog of application. So many of these Chinese biotech companies um, have been sitting waiting for a response on approval or not for years in some cases. Now you see the government really starting to invest in staffing to help with the backlog. So I will give them credit, say that they are making strides, but that is still a huge, huge area of uncertainty. You want to know that when you're investing in the company, there's transparency, there's transparency, there's accountability, and you understand and can trust the data that comes out of these trials. And that's still, I think, one of the, the biggest holes in the investment thesis for a lot of companies right now uh, in China, but something to watch. Um, but yeah, I think that you know the regulatory framework is another one. In addition to, you always hear stories about Chinese insider trading, questionable financial statements. Um, and so there's a lot to be desired, even on the financial side of things as well. And even on the uh, IP side, their intellectual property protections aren't nearly as strong as they are here in the US. Um, and you've got to build out a good insurance network to be able to cover a lot of these drugs, especially expensive amino oncology drugs. So still a lot left to be desired there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, So, let's actually talk a little bit more on the topic of transparency and risk. Um, For many of the healthcare investors that listen to the show, I'm sure your news feed has probably been uh, slammed with news about designer babies, Simon. Designer CRISPRed babies. (laughs) What do you say to all of this? Uh, this This is opening Pandora's box, Shannon. Uh, this is this is a science that has been around technically since the kind of mid '90s. It was when the first abstracts and papers were coming out for what became CRISPR. But it's basically gene editing. You're you're taking the DNA strand, you're snipping out small pieces of it, and you're you're removing or editing genes. So in terms of of the science itself, this is a a the reason I say this is Pandora's box being opened is because the name Jin Kwai He. Uh, the scientist in, in China has now not only genetically engineered a human embryo, but that human embryo actually was now, you know, the mother actually gave birth to twins with this genetically engineered embryo. We have a genetically engineered baby that has been born. This is not just animal testing anymore. This is now very much more real than just the lab work that was being done before. And this is now a science that can be incredibly innovative, incredibly progressive, and prevent a lot of genetic diseases. But that's counterbalanced because this is also a a very um, controversial question that is not black or white. It's not a good or a bad thing, but a lot of people are taking opposition to what's being done and questioning, Shannon, whether or not this was even legal for the scientist to do this in the first place. 
Exactly. And I believe he was actually a Stanford trained and, as you mentioned, went back to China um, to go back and really kind of build up biotech, build up some companies there. But yeah, so with this CRISPR, one of the advantages of using CRISPR is that it really is kind of a do it yourself kit. I mean, we even have high school students that are doing experiments with CRISPR, you know, at their schools, which is kind of insane to me. So the ease of access, uh, the ease of use of CRISPR is so intriguing. And you can see it applied in many different applications. You can see it in uh, agricultural biotech. You can also see it, of course, being used. And it's starting to be tested here in the U.S. on human trials, not for germline editing, um, but for certain diseases that uh, are occurring in adults. But um, one of, I think, the interesting things with this designer baby story, it seems like new headlines come out every day, but it sounds like... He was able to actually go in and do what he intended to do, or at least halfway. So basically, what he was attempting to do was to make these babies resistant to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And basically, the the way he wanted to go about it was disabling a gene called CCR5. Um, He was able to disable the gene in one of the little girls who was just born. Um, But it was interesting because in the other little girl, we get, of course, two copies of every gene. Only one copy of that CCR5 gene was actually disabled. The other was not. So the question is... Well, is she actually resistant to HIV? Um, also, too, CCR5 is a mutation that already exists. There are adults that are HIV resistant in the world now. What's so interesting about that, though, is that they're actually more vulnerable to diseases like West Nile virus, um, even seasonal flu. So now you've got an immune system that is out of whack. We don't know what will happen long term. When these children grow up and become adults and parents and have kids, this will pass on to their kids, and we don't know what that will look like. So for the scientist who kind of did this in secrecy, nobody really knew about it until they came out at a conference and said, hey, guys, I just did something incredible. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more questions than there are answers in regards to what happens with this. I do know that China actually came out and banned germline editing. Of course, it's illegal here in the U.S., but they finally came out and banned it, but with no actual enforcement arm in China. And as we talk about regulatory infrastructure, they don't have a way to really monitor this. So this is something that could continue to happen, and this could be a potential downside, especially if you hear about off-target effects that happen in other trials in China as well. It's a huge question mark. Like you said, it is prohibited in China legally, but people are speculating that the Chinese government might have given Dr. He special permissions to do these these experiments. So you haven't seen any uh, anything solid as far as prosecution of what's going to happen from this. It's an investigation that's undergoing right now. You're also seeing some of the leading IP researchers, such as Feng Zhang down at the Broad Institute in Boston, calling for a moratorium on a lot of the IP that he's created for CRISPR, just saying, hey, there are risks we don't know about that might that might happen from this. Just like you mentioned, Shen, about CCR5, potentially uh, having babies more susceptible to West Nile virus. So there's still the off-target mutations, or even if it does work correctly, what's going to be the unintended consequences of this? And of course, you've got the slippery slope argument of what is okay and what is not okay. I, I think it's going to be very difficult In fact, I've never even heard of a globally agreed upon framework for what is permitted and what is not permitted ethically 
in scientific discoveries like these. It's going to be hard to, to, to say this is okay, but we're not going to do this. This is a medical necessity versus this is a designer baby. There's a lot of gray area there in the middle that, that is, I think, going to halt the adoption. But I will counteract all of that, Shannon, if I can say one other thing on this subject, which is if we go back to the year 1978 and we look at in vitro fertilization, this was something that was hugely controversial in London when the first baby was born from an embryo that was fertilized in vitro outside of the womb. And then the baby still came out totally normal, but this was being called the greatest threat to society since the atomic bomb at the time. And the mother that actually delivered the baby in, in London had to use an assumed identity because of the outrage from the public about this. Of course, IBS has, has caught on since then. The creator won a Nobel Prize in 2010 for it. There's now 8 million babies that have been born IVF in the world for something that was hugely controversial 40 years ago. So I think that as I've said, we've opened Pandora's box and there's a lot of controversy around gene editing today. I'm not certain that that same level of controversy is going to be there even five or 10 years into the future. Yeah, fair enough. And I think that's a very good point. Um, before we actually dive into a couple of stocks that we think are worth watching, Simon, would you say holistically for, let's say, the average investor out there who's maybe considering investing in Chinese biotech, what would be your words of wisdom to that person? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is science is still going to win at the end of the day. I mean, we can be excited about China's population that needs good medicines out there. We can be excited about the people that are that are coming on board and the companies that are being created and the policy and all of that stuff is, is very good in terms of supporting what is still founded upon good science. At the end of the day, the most important thing is that you have really effective drugs that are based upon good technology and good science that are curing or treating these very serious diseases. And so I think that the takeaway for investors is there is going to be a lot of headlines that are, there are going to be a lot of headlines that you're going to see that are going to contain the sizzle and the buzz and the excitement around what's going on in China. But at the end of the day, we still need to look at the data from those readouts that are presented from these trials and see how that's compared against um, the standards of care that have been for decades uh, being used in, in westernized countries. It's a great opportunity, but, but still data is going to prove the, how this shakes out at the end of the day. That's right. It all comes down to data. And I would even add, um, until the Chinese infrastructure and the regulatory reforms are really in place and we can trust it, for me, it's just making sure that if they're running trials in China, how easy is it for them to set up a trial in the Western market, um, run those trials, and then be able to reproduce the same clinical results that they saw in China as well? So I want to see more U.S.-based trials. And I think from there, assuming it's a good opportunity, it's an innovative approach, uh, and the company management team is clear and transparent, I think uh, you might be on the right track. So, with that, um, one quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive right into two top stocks to watch. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they've created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call 
biopharmaceutical acceleration, helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com slash podcast. All right, Simon. So, I'm excited to talk about this first stock. This is one that you actually brought up to me, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, and it should be no surprise in talking about hot biotech stocks to watch. Immuno-oncology is one of the hottest areas in biotech right now, whether you're in the U.S. or in China. And immuno-oncology is really about using the body's own immune system and supercharging it to actually fight and attack cancer. So this is definitely a paradigm shift away from the chemo and the radiation. Not necessarily a chemo killer at this point, but certainly a very intriguing area to invest. And so, Simon, there's one stock that you've been watching. Um, Can you school us on, first, what is this stock, and what was it about this stock that actually attracted you from the beginning? Well, the first thing that attracted me to it was it had an interesting name, Shannon. <laughs> the name of the company is Beijing. Not Beijing, as in the capital of China, but Beijing is in the genetic-focused uh, biotech company. The ticker on this is BGNE. This is a company that's really focusing on immuno-oncology drugs. They're uh, addressing several different forms of cancer. And it's getting a lot of attention because they've got what I would describe as some very key partnerships, uh, which prove a lot of validation. They're working with larger Western pharmaceutical companies, and then also they've got a really good pipeline of their own. And so I I think originally it was probably the name that attracted me to them. But then and when I started looking closer, I said, yes, this is actually a legitimate company. And they're packing a heck of a punch of what they're working on back there, too. Yeah, and so this particular company is technically a commercial stage company, which is great for investors. Um, for a lot of us, we we tend to like the uh, pre-commercial stage biotechs, especially as we're watching clinical trials. But it was through a licensing deal with Celgene that actually now technically they are a commercial stage company. Simon, what was that deal all about? That's right. So, Shannon, as you know, Celgene likes to partner with a lot of companies, doing a lot of neat things all over the world. With Beijing, um, they have licensed their drugs Revlimid, Abraxane, and Vidaza uh, to, to Beijing, which, by the way, the names kind, kind of sound similar. They've both got that gene at the end of it, but uh, Beijing has now licensed from Celgene the rights to those three drugs to sell in China. And now these, these drugs are selling $10 billion globally right now with Celgene. And Beijing is basically starting from scratch in China. They did $38 million last quarter. That's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to $10 billion globally. But they're growing this at 150% per year. They're starting to get regulatory approvals for these. The reimbursements are being approved for, for different indications as well. And so as you see these Celgene drugs, first of all, that are commercially available, they're already being sold in China. Beijing is pushing for those in a variety of different blood cancers and and serious disorders. So the reason this is so interesting to me in the first place is let's just assume in the longer term, even though sales are pretty much non-existent in China today, China's got a population that's five times larger than the United States. And if we assume that they can even get one third of the sales of Revlimid in China as they did in the United States uh, for multiple myeloma, That'd be a $2 billion peak sales in China. I think it's capable of much more than that, but let's just say $2 billion within the country's walls. 
if you put maybe four times peak sales on that as an investor, which is pretty common in, in biotech, four to five times peak sales, you're already looking at a company that should be worth $8 billion in terms of the valuation. That is what Beijing is valued at today, Shannon, but they've still got an entire pipeline that's being valued essentially at zero if you put that kind of multiple on it. So I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on in Beijing's pipeline that's worth a lot more than zero dollars for investors. This is an asymmetrical risk reward, in my opinion, that favors investors. Absolutely. And I must say, there's one particular asset, and that's BGB A317. It's a checkpoint inhibitor uh, being studied in solid tumors. But this particular um, deal, especially with the pack with Celgene, so for many of our listeners for Industry Focus, we've talked about Celgene a lot. Um, as you know, they have become overly dependent on one drug. 63% of revenue is for Revlimid. Um, one of the things they haven't really uh, I guess, drove into as much as they should have early on was checkpoint inhibitors. You've got Bristol-Myers Squibb with Opdivo. You've got uh, Merck and Keytruda. And this is a potentially a $30 billion market with checkpoint inhibitors. So now you see Celgene positioning themselves to have one of these, what I call, foundational drugs uh, in their pipeline. And really, the future of immunotherapy, the future of immuno-oncology I think, is personally going to be a lot of these uh, combination therapies. You have a checkpoint inhibitor, and then you add another drug from your pipeline to make it even more effective. And so, I think for a lot of reasons, this makes sense for Celgene. This certainly makes sense for Beijing. Um, I think for, for those reasons and all the ones that you mentioned, Simon, this is definitely a stock to watch. Yeah, and the one that you mentioned that's in combination with with uh, the checkpoint inhibitors, tylizumab is the name of that drug. They're working with Celgene to commercialize that right now, Shannon. I mean, that's already filed, right? They've got the NDA that they're just waiting for approval in China. If they get approval in China for this, uh, which would target Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, could be also used for advanced liver cancer, some pretty serious diseases right there. If it works and it gets filed and approved in China, they want to also bring that to the U.S., which of course would be of interest to Celgene. As well, it's a great partnership. Celgene took an equity stake in Beijing last year. They now own about 6% of the company because they see the potential for growing and getting a foothold in China and also developing, as you said, some great cocktails for their own drugs that they're, they're, they're developing for a variety of different indications of cancer. Absolutely. So overall, I think uh, this is definitely one of the more safer, more mature companies out there in China right now. But certainly, um, things to watch that we mentioned earlier on the show, on in the show that you want to be mindful of. Uh, let's turn the tables to our next stock. This one definitely not nearly as safe, but one that really captivated investor attention um, last year at ASCO. That's the American Society for Clinical Clinical Oncology's annual meeting. Kind of like the Super Bowl of uh, biotech. Uh, you get scientists, you get investors coming to this particular conference. And so, this particular company, it's called Nanjing Legend. We'll just call it Legend, um, as you'll hear it more frequently. Uh, actually produced a late breaker abstract. They basically, at the last minute, uh, said, we've got data that we want to show in relation to our drug. They came on stage and truly wowed both investors and scientists. Um, I'll go back a little bit and say Legend is actually a subsidiary of its parent company, a company called Genscript. Um, this is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange currently. Um, 
Nanjing Legend is not currently listed, although there is talk that at some point it could be listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in the near future. But uh, this particular company, um, Genscript, actually became the first company to earn approval from the Chinese government to begin clinical trials for a type of cancer treatment called CAR-T therapy, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Basically, it's taking a patient's T-cells, genetically modifying them in a lab, and then giving those cells back to the patient to then fight cancer. Um, So for me, this was a stock that really just kind of shook me, one, because of its target. So for our listeners, um, we've been talking about CAR-T stocks. The two that are approved right now, Yescarta and Camraya, uh, they are CD19 CAR-T therapies. They are targeted and indicated for lymphoma. But what you see is this next generation of CAR-T therapies coming out, and one of those is BCMA. So it's targeting a completely different antigen. It's not targeting CD19. And two, Legends drug, which is LCAR-B38M, believes that it may even be differentiating itself from other rivals, too. So you've got uh, Celgene again and Bluebird who have uh, BB2121 um, that's also a, a BCMA. But this one in particular, Legend likes to describe it like gripping a basket. Um, with their particular uh, construct, basically it's got two hands on the basket rather than one. What this does is potentially make the drug more potent, more effective. We'll have to wait and see what that looks like. But really, Simon, for me, uh, in this particular drug, it was all about the study results that came out of that ASCO meeting. Yeah, absolutely. It's got the right name, Shane, and legend. <laughs> I mean, that, that has to be a good one, right? You can't, you can't beat that. And looking at the conference, so what they did is they presented, uh, it was an early clinical trial, 33 out of 35 patients, that's 90, 94% with multiple myeloma who had failed or relapsed on previous treatments, actually went into clinical remission within two months of receiving Legends CAR-T drug, which is amazing. Um, even more amazing, though, what really caught investors' attention was that there was an objective overall response rate of 100%. That means every single patient had some sort of response. You don't generally see that. You may see maybe upwards of 80%, but you don't see 100%. So that's what really took investors by surprise. They did give a recent update at this year's ASH conference, the American Society of Hematology Conference, um, just earlier this month. And uh, we did start to see the uh, effectiveness come down just a bit, but you tend to see that as they run these trials over the long term. But um, in the 57 patients now who receive the treatment, the overall response rate was 88%, with 74% having a complete response. Um, There was, I guess you could say, some hesitation, even on these numbers, um, there was some thought that maybe they weren't showing all the patients in the trial. Um, and also, too, the patients that did respond, it looked like the median lines of treatment, like how many treatments they had actually failed, was three. If you compare that to Bluebird and what they're doing, these are actually much healthier patients. Bluebird had, I think, about seven median lines of treatment before they started their therapy. So it could be that the results that legend is seen is because you just have a healthier patient base to start with. We'll have to see how that plays out over the long term, but nonetheless, uh, pretty impressive numbers. Um, But Simon, you mentioned how important partnership is when it comes to biotech. 
legend is no different. After they presented their initial data at ASCO, uh, by December of that year, actually, J&J inked a licensing deal with legend. They paid uh, $350 million up front, where basically J&J and Janssen, which is their biotech arm, uh, got global, gets global net sales outside of China, 50-50 cost-sharing agreement, and then, of course, all the biobucks and royalties that go with it. So, they attracted the behemoth... J and J, I like first of all the clinical trial results. I love the partnership aspect here. Um, but with that being said, like with any company, there's always drawbacks too. Absolutely, I, I, this one's going on my watch list, and I heard about it from you here today, so I'm putting this <laughs> one on my on my watch list now. Yeah, absolutely, put it on your watch list. I will say for me moving forward, there are a couple of things I know I'm going to be watching. As I mentioned, I want to see U.S. trials underway. I want to see them be able to reproduce this data in the U.S. setting, just to make sure that we're seeing the same things. Also, this could potentially be an M&A candidate moving forward. Um, I mentioned that Nanjing Legend could become its own listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, so we'll have to see there. And also, too, just how it stacks up with Bluebird and Celgene moving forward. So, all in all, I think that sets up for a really interesting 2019 for this company. Um, Really interesting companies to watch here. Simon, any final words for our listeners today about investing in Chinese biotech stocks? Well, it's just such an interesting market right now, Shannon. I mean, you've got China now throwing 1 million yuan bonuses. That's about $150,000 to anybody that has clinical trial experience that's a researcher to come to China and set up shop there. They've got immediate access to government grants. They've got teams of people at life science parks that they're building across the country. They've got the momentum to bring some serious IP and some serious know-how within the country. And I think that that is more than anything kind of inciting this biotech revolution within China right now. They've also got twice as many hospital patients than the US and Europe combined that are eager to get therapies to these serious diseases that maybe they didn't have access to before. Like you said, just a small percentage of FDA approved drugs are even available in China before the the last couple of years. So I think this is setting the scene. I think as investors, this is something that, yes, it has its controversy. Yes, there are definitely risks investing in China, especially small tech or small cap biotech companies. But I think that there is also a lot of very positive tailwinds and momentum behind this that could be um, something we're talking about in 2018 and then also 2019 and 2022. I think this is one of those long-term trends that I see developing as an investor. So, that means you have signed on to do another show with me, Simon Erickson, in 2019, so we can follow up on Chinese biotech. Is that right? Absolutely. Anytime, (laughs) Shane. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me today, Simon. And thank you, listeners, for joining in. Uh, As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Simon Erickson, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built 
to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com slash podcast.